From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. We got some interesting news recently from the IRS about who it's choosing to audit and who it's not choosing to audit. Last week, the agency told Congress it would reduce audits of the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, and other refundable tax credits. It's a response to a high-profile study from earlier this year that found that black taxpayers claiming the EITC are more likely than others claiming the credit to be audited. But how will this actually work? Will it make IRS audits more fair? And could it potentially increase the number of fraudulent tax preparers out there? We pose these questions to Nina Olson, the executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights and the former national taxpayer advocate. Olson spoke to reporter Aaron Slowey about the rationale behind the move and about why it makes her optimistic, though cautiously optimistic, very cautiously. My initial reaction was, well, it's about time. You know, and actually, this was not the first time that the IRS had tried to decrease EITC audits. Uh, In 2004 or so, when Commissioner Mark Everson came in and he was trying to increase enforcement attention, enforcement resources, he went down to Atlanta to look at how the IRS was doing EITC audits. And I just remember him coming back just appalled at how many audits we were doing, how much resources, how many human beings we were dedicating to this issue, which was just a tiny part of the tax gap. And he really tried also to cut the number of audits on EITC in half. And you know, sort of the blowback from that at that point was no, you know, fraud, waste, abuse, rampant, whatever. And so had to back off of that. And so to this administration's credit, I think it's really important in this commissioner, you know, that they see this through. Can you give us some background about like for taxpayers, for low income taxpayers specifically, when they're faced with EITC related audits, like what it, what does that mean for them and like why is it so complicated? Well, I mean, first of all, you've got a group of taxpayers who are not particularly sophisticated, are often the working poor, and so they cannot sit there in their remote work in their home offices and talk to the IRS during the day whenever they feel like it. You know, they are working usually on an hourly basis. You know, if they spend an hour on the phone with the IRS or gathering documents or whatever, then they're going to lose pay. And so, you know, this is a paper-driven process. It's a correspondence-driven process. I think you've seen the IRS correspondence. It is not clear. The letters are not saying specifically what you are being looked at. And they're often written in a way, in a form way that says, even though they may be looking at one thing, they ask you to submit documentation about every single aspect of these provisions. So if they're only looking at residency, they ask you to submit relationship proof and all this other proof. And what constitutes proof, it's not necessarily clear. Uh, So taxpayers may send in, you know, one school year's worth of records showing that the child's living with them, but that only gets you five months of a calendar year. And so they don't know to send in two school year's worth of records to get six months and a day of residency for a whole year. There's no communication back and forth. The IRS makes virtually no outbound calls to these taxpayers. So it's all about calling in. And so it's just it's just not 
a, a process in which you're going to get correct answers. I do think that, you know, emphasis on, you know, helping people at the very beginning, you know, we've recommended for years having a toll-free phone line around the year just dedicated to the family, what I call family status credit. So people can call up and ask questions. And then, you know, not in the heat of filing season, but just during the year to figure out whether, where they stand. You know, all that sort of stuff would be enormously helpful. Something that I'm trying to understand, like, how valuable is this tax credit for some, like, low-income taxpayers? Like, how much of their income does it, like, typically make up? Well, you know, it can be up to a quarter of their income. We have really seen that. I know that the Taxpayer Advocate Service, you know, twice now has done studies on the 32K penalty, which is the two-year or 10-year ban if you've been intentional or reckless disregard of the rules and regulations. And there in their data, they said that the two-year ban that the EITC that was denied to otherwise eligible taxpayers constituted a quarter of their income. So you can really see what a sizable amount that is. It's the difference between being able to have medical care or, you know, being able to pay rent on, or even if you're homeless, putting a deposit down and first month's rent on an apartment or something like that. And I know you mentioned in the beginning fraud. It's something the IRS has been talking a lot about recently. I know with the employee retention credit, they're kind of ramping up their efforts to go after those unscrupulous preparers. Do you think that the IRS saying that they're going to de- decrease audits in this area of credits, like, do you think that will bring about more fraud? Well, I think that it, you know, let me say this. People who are committing tax fraud, you know, they're not just doing tax fraud. They're looking for any kind of activity that they can make a quick buck really easily. They're opportunists. All right. So they move from one place to another. And that's what we saw with identity theft, et cetera. So, you know, the harder you make it for them to be able to commit it, then the bet, then they'll move on to someplace else. So um, I think that what's gone unnoticed in Commissioner Werfel's letter is the paragraph about what they're planning to do with return preparers. And I was heartened to see how they were talking about using data because I think the IRS has not had as robust a program to go after the sources of return preparation. Um, And I do know that for the last couple of years, they've really been doing some research studies looking at ghost preparers, you know, preparers who are actually preparing for a fee but not signing the return, which makes it hard for the IRS to track them down, but also looking at you know, the data that they've got about preparers and doing some really robust contacts and and initiatives. Because again, you know, you could do one-on-one audits till the cows come home. But, you know, if you address one really unscrupulous or incompetent preparer, you're going to, you know, improve compliance for every single one of those taxpayers. And something I'm trying to also understand is like, with a decrease in the audits on EITCs, like, does that mean that the IRS, like, will be rejecting more tax returns up front? Like, what does that mean in in that sense? Well, Erin, that's a really great question. And that is the part of the strategic operating plan. And this letter that I am concerned about and have, you know, raised concerns as many others have. Um, The idea of 
doing upfront issue resolution is a great idea, but if it results in more rejection of returns, you know, under the law of the United States Tax Court, which has not been overturned, an e-filed return that's rejected is still a return. And we believe that the IRS should accept, you know, they can certainly say to taxpayers, we noticed something on this return that you're trying to file. You may want to think about this. Do you still want to proceed? And the taxpayer can then make that decision, make a correction or proceed with the return as is. But they have to give them that choice. They can't just reject them. And I, you know, I have real concerns about that, whether it's going to lead to more math error or you know, just this e-file rejection, which is just an administrative thing that I personally think is violating the law in many instances. And I know you're kind of talking about due process. I've heard the saying, like, the race to claim. Like, why is it important for there to kind of be this due process for these taxpayers? Separately from this, just the legal issue is, you know, it's very clear what constitutes a return. And when you file a return that has the information on it that the IRS needs to calculate the tax and it's signed under penalties of perjury, et cetera, you know, it meets the Beard v. Commissioner test, then it's a return. And if the IRS rejecting it is just an administrative thing and it doesn't make it not a return. And that's what the tax court has said very clearly. So there's that. So that's just a fundamental issue, that it's not for the IRS convenience. The taxpayer has filed a return and the IRS needs to treat it as such. The second part of that is that you've got a whole group of taxpayers where, because of their circumstances, whether they were married one year and now they're divorced the next or separated the next, or they're survivors of abuse, of spousal abuse of some sort, the other person in this child's life or may not have any relationship to the child, but just gets there first and claims the child. And then the legitimate claimant has the return rejected and then has to file a paper return and go through that whole process. And we believe that that's, well, first of all, you know, legally, that's just not what you should be doing. It is a return and you should not be putting the burden on that second person. And, you know, the IRS likes to talk about artificial intelligence, but it has a lot of information inside its this agency. And it could be really creating programs that are more geared to recognizing what needs to be done with duplicate claims for the child or for a taxpayer for that matter, like someone claiming you on a married filing joint return where you're separated. And then the IRS can use its internal data to decide who it wants to audit. And that may mean that they've already paid out money to someone and they should use one of those limited audits to go after someone who got money who shouldn't have because they won the race to file. Okay. And then I know um, when the IRS made it, this announcement, it was sent over an email, which I was subscribed to, and there was also a letter sent to Congress. In terms of like the trickle of information from IRS to taxpayers, especially low-income taxpayers, like when do you expect to see this news about the, the decrease in audits kind of trickle down and really impact these taxpayers? Well, I don't know whether... The couple layers to that. I don't know whether that information is ever going to layer down until you get to the next filing season and you maybe get unscrupulous preparers who may say to taxpayers, well, the IRS is in, you know, has cut its audits by half, so your chances of getting caught are X. And that's where the IRS really needs to do some 
aggressive education before the filing season starts and saying we still are looking and there may be other things that we're doing. And then the other thing is so much other activity is not audits. You know, I did a blog years ago about real versus unreal audits. And when you look at math error, when you look at automated underreporter where somebody maybe has left off a W-2 or a 1099 and that would change their credit balance, you know, what they would get. All of that is not an audit. And the IRS isn't saying they're cutting that. And in fact, they may actually ramp up more of that. So from some taxpayers, they may not be audited by a formal audit, but they will have something holding up their return and interacting with the IRS. Got it. And then I guess my last question that I have for you is, you've kind of touched on it throughout the conversation, is like, is this decision to reduce audits in this area, like, is it enough to help solve the issues with bias in audits? I think that's a broader question. Um, You know, I thought that the IRS was making a very good point. Like when you read the study carefully, you know, the racial disparity is eliminated when you conduct audits based on the amount of predicted underreported tax or income or whatever you're looking at, but really the dollar amount of tax that you think you can recover from this audit. And when you select returns based on that, there isn't a racial disparity. And you actually collect more revenue was the other point, which a lot of people have overlooked. So from most of the measures that would mean you're a successful tax administration, why wouldn't you be doing that? And that's what the study showed was that, you know, talked about where there were external factors that maybe brought about the skewing for the EITC audits. As I constantly say, people have the perspective that a dollar of refundable tax credit paid out is somehow more valuable than a dollar not collected because of unreported self-employment income. And it's not. It's a dollar is a dollar is a dollar, but we have this bias about paying out money rather than not collecting in money that's due. And I think this is an effort to try, you know, try to rebalance the, the audit selection process um, with that. That was Nina Olson, the executive director of the Center for Taxpayer Rights, speaking with Aaron Slowey. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Naomi Jagoda is our editor from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.com. 
www.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts. <laughs>